This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And we're off again on the 24th episode of, of the podcast. Thank you so much for being part of the show, and uh, you know how much I appreciate you listening. I want to start off with uh, how very much in touch with the symbolic is the president, uh, along with the administration. They uh, have learned the trick of saying something that the Western world doesn't get, but that the Islamic world notes very well. And this is something, this is a game that has been played by Islamic leaders for many years now, uh, which is um, saying something for their followers in the Arab street and then saying something entirely different for Westerners, uh, of course, to whom it is permitted to lie. And... The, uh, the fact is so well known today that very often when, uh, for instance, Iran says something that shows their utter disdain for the Iran so-called treaty, something they, the leadership in Tehran says uh, that shows blithering contempt uh, for, the, uh, for the agreement, uh, the response in Western capitals is, oh, you don't have to pay much attention to that. That was just said for their followers in the Arab street. Well, you know, of course, that um, the CIA has as its bailiwick the world, where the FBI is for internal matters. The CIA uh, deals with the rest of the world. And so you'll remember in all the James Bond movies, uh, when James Bond had to collaborate with an American counterpart, Felix Leiter was part of the CIA. And um, the head of the CIA, John Brennan, gave a speech. And uh, you really want to hear, um, it's only it's about 30 seconds or so, but it's, it's worth listening through to the very end. Listen to this now. In Saudi Arabia, I saw how our Saudi partners fulfilled their duty as custodian of the two holy mosques of Mecca and Medina. I marveled at the majesty of the Hajj and the devotion of those who fulfilled their duty as Muslims by making that privilege, that pilgrimage. And in all my travels, the city I have come to love most is Al-Quds, Jerusalem. It's come together. Did you get what he called Jerusalem? Al-Quds! Listen to it again. Here it comes. Fill their duty as Muslims by making that privilege, but the pilgrimage. And in all my travels, the city I have come to love most is Al-Quds, Jerusalem. The city I've come to love most is Al-Quds, Jerusalem. Folks, there, there's only one group of people on the planet 
that call Jerusalem Al-Quds. And I don't have to tell you who they are. So um, what was that all about? A senior-ranking American officer, the head of the CIA, makes a public speech. Do you not think that that was carefully vetted and reviewed by everybody, including the political wing of the White House and uh, the State Department? It gets vetted. It gets checked. And by calling Jerusalem Al-Quds, by the way, I think that may be the first time that any American official has ever done that. And look out for that to be happening more now. When an American official refers to Jerusalem as Al-Quds, they are sending a message to the Arab street, which is, we recognize your claim on Jerusalem. <laughs> it's, it's quite remarkable. And... Uh, when I was in Israel a little while ago, and you know that I broadcast a, a few shows from there, um, I actually spoke to several people who had had conversations with Palestinian Arabs who, who work in Israel and who, are, who appear to be sophisticated and peace-loving. And these are the very people that uh, you would look at and say, see, See that the majority of Muslims are peace-loving, ordinary folks, just like you and me. Excepting these are the very people who told my friends that um, only in a few more years we will own all of Israel. That's what they said. Uh, the uh, father of the male San, Bern San Bernardino bomber um, has notified the press as well as the police that uh, his son, you know, had a, a real problem with Israel. Okay, so when you hear a senior U.S. government official, the head of the CIA, John Brennan, refer, oh, of all my travels, the, my, my most favorite city is Al-Quds, <laughs> please be aware of this. See what they're saying. Now, there's something else that uh, I want to uh, point you at. And that is that wherever you go, wherever you talk, whoever you listen to, everyone – and listen, listen to the, uh, the GOP debates. Everybody is talking about the war against ISIS. You know, what's the best way to, to deal with ISIS? Should we uh, stop them at the borders of the United States or should we go out to Syria or Iran and solve the ISIS problem there? But whatever it is, everybody is talking about ISIS, the Islamic State, ISIS. And uh, there's only one person who refers to it consistently a little bit differently. And uh, I want you to listen to this. We will destroy ISIL and any other organization that tries to harm us. We will continue to provide training and equipment to tens of thousands of Iraqi and Syrian forces fighting ISIL on the ground. We're working with friends and allies to stop ISIL's operations. That was a compilation. So there you see what we got there. We've got the president of the United States of America consistently referring to it not as ISIS, but as ISIL. What is going on? Well, I think we have to understand the difference of those two terms. ISIS, as I'm sure you all know, stands for Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Now, if you take a look um, at the map, uh, you've got Jordan and, um, 
and uh, Syria. Syria is the northern neighbor of Israel to the east. And then south of Syria, Jordan is a southern neighbor of Israel to the east. <clears throat> and then if you go further east, past Jordan, you come to Iraq. Okay? Now, and so the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria is Iraq and Syria. And you, you can look at the map and see, and those are the states where ISIS is um, pretty much setting up camp. Now, ISIL, I-S-I-L, which is what the president consistently refers to it as, well, that stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Now, the Levant is a term that um, comes from the, the rising of the sun, the east, and is basically the entire stretch of land along the Mediterranean, from the Mediterranean all the way east. So the Levant, and, and it's spoken of that way until relatively recently in British politics, they would speak about the Levant, and then, you know, that took in uh, Lebanon and uh, Israel and Syria and Jordan and Iraq and, uh, and uh, uh, prob probably Turkey as well. The Levant is like a massive stretch. So when you say ISIS, you're talking about these guys who are currently in Iraq and Syria. But when you say ISIL, you have essentially removed Israel out of the picture. You've uh, eliminated it as a, an independent country. And you've lumped it in with the rest of the countries along the Mediterranean. Israel disappears, loses its sovereignty, and is part of the Levant. And so uh, that means that's part of ISIL. So what's going on? When you say the word ISIL, you are in fact conceding that entire stretch of Middle East real estate to this Islamic caliphate. It's incredible. So what's going on? Why is it that uh, the president, as well as some other government agencies as well within the administration, all refer to it consistently as ISIL, and they will sometimes spell it out to make sure no one gets anything wrong, and, um, and everyone, else, everyone else uses the term ISIS, the Islamic State. So um, what's, what's going on there? What's happening? Now, you see, we tend not to be people of enormous symbolism. We tend to be, take pride in being a straight-talking, blunt people that say what we mean and mean what we say. But the niceties of um, the symbolism that is so important in the, the world of Arabia is something we don't really get. But the president gets very well indeed. And so, you know, as you probably know, this president is the first and only president in the history of the country who's ever been photographed with his feet on the, ta on the desk in the Oval Office, sitting back with his feet on the desk. Um, you know, what's, there, what's there to say? I mean, you, you, know, you know how bad that is, um, everything that, that reflects. But in, 
Arabian culture, showing somebody the bottom of your foot is a big insult. And so as I began to look more closely into the president's comfort with Arabic symbolism, um, it began to make sense to me that putting his feet on the desk isn't just putting his feet on the desk, but it's showing the sole of his foot. And... Um, and this is not in any way, I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that uh, I think he's a Muslim. Um, I don't think he is. I, I think his commitment is to socialism. And I think uh, his commitment is to a general hatred of the Western world. And, uh, and so this is, this is really part of it. But, um, but it's worthwhile noting that to Arabs in the Middle East, listening to John Brennan saying Al-Quds for Jerusalem, um, <laughs> that's a, it's a word, it's a phrase that the founders of America didn't, they'd never heard, they'd never heard of such a thing. Um, but, um, but when they hear the president saying, or John Brennan saying Al-Quds, that sends a strong message to them. When uh, the, when the uh, world of Arabia listens to the, the, the president uh, or other officials in the administration speaking about ISIL, Islamic State of the Levant, then they understand that he's referring to a large multinational region. Uh, it's, um, it's really a big stretch from Turkey in the north all the way to Egypt in the south. And, um, and sort of right at the pivot point in the middle of that crescent, of course, is Israel. But he's sending, the president is sending a message to all of these people that he does not recognize Israel as a sovereign nation, but as part of the Islamic State. Now, I know this sounds crazy. It sounds crazy as I researched it and looked into it. And I spent a lot of time thinking about whether I should... Uh, I should even uh, raise this, but I think I have to because it helps explain something else that's going on, which is have you noticed how there's been tremendous dragging of the feet on the part of the administration in dealing with ISIS or ISIL? Um, there's excuses, there's delays, it's going to solve itself, and we'll send 15 special force people. Like, who are these people, like magicians? that 15 of them can take care of, who knows, somewhere between 30 and 100,000 ISIS warriors. But what's really going on is that, in my view, the president's plan is to basically drag his feet as long as he can, do absolutely nothing, do all only what he's absolutely forced to do, and basically to give ISIS as much time as possible to, to make all the gains that, uh, that they're going to make. Um, unfortunately, you, uh, you can now, you can go on, on YouTube and listen to officials in the administration, officials even in the military, are now using the term ISIL instead of ISIS. And there's got to be a reason for it. And I think that this is the reason. I'm, to the best of my ability, this appears to be the reason. Wish it weren't true, my friends, but uh, I think it probably is. Quick break, back for more in a moment. 
ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Your radio rabbi reminding you of how the world really works on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, the 24th episode, and uh, great to have you along. My website, as you know, and uh, I have to keep reminding you of it because I'm only seeing about a quarter of you visiting that website, so uh, we got to increase that just a little bit to make all of this viable. And uh, that is youneedarabbi.com. That's right, youneedarabbi.com. And uh, that'll bring you there. Uh, You can uh, roam around the website, but particularly I'd like you to visit the store and uh, read up about the various resources. I think there's a very strong probability that you will see something there that makes sense for you and uh, something that will enhance your quality of life in one of the areas that we specialize in. But um, enough of that. As we move on, to take a look at uh, airports in general. Now, this is just a, uh, a small and brief look at airports, but a very important part of it. <clears throat> um, the um, airports always used to be part of the futuristic vision of America. When you saw photographs, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, you saw photographs of um, travel brochures and things of America, they very often showed the TWA terminal at uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. Now, this terminal was designed by um, uh, a a very fashionable architect out of Detroit, uh, Serenan was his name, and it was designed for uh, the um, uh, TWA. Now, New York's Kennedy Airport was unusual in that a number of the airlines built their own terminals there, um, as opposed to the way it works in most airports. And so TWA wanted to build something very notable and, um, and, and modernistic, and to this very day, and you can see it there, it's in the process now of being converted to a hotel. Donald Trump would probably convert it into a hotel in four months. Um, it is going to take five years to be done uh, by the New York Port Authority. But at any rate, uh, the, uh, the, the building, um, which is I mean, it's, it's really a, a, a gorgeous building, and, uh, and when I first arrived in the United States, I used to travel. I, I arrived in the States in the 70s. And I used to travel a lot by TWA, and um, I flew in and out of that terminal all the time. It was always, always uplifting, and I mean, it was just really remarkable. It was way, way ahead of its time. And the only reason it's, it's, it, it ceased being usable was, number one, uh, TWA folded and sold their assets to American Airlines. And second, that um, as the uh, jumbo jet became... Uh, the, the standard mode of transport, uh, the air, that, that 
terminal, the TWA terminal, just was not big enough uh, to be able to handle that influx of passengers, plus, plus the new security requirements um, as, as the realities of Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism began to be uh, prevalent. Uh, the the air that terminal didn't lend itself to the kind of rec um, modifications needed for so-called security. Uh, when it was built, the airport back then was known as Idlewild Airport. Um, it only got named as uh, JFK or John F. Kennedy Airport in 63 after the president was assassinated. But before that, Idlewild Airport was over there. Meanwhile, uh, on the other uh, side of, of Long Island in Queens was an airport. Uh, it was originally the Glenn Curtis Airport after the aviation pioneer. And then um, during the office of, I believe, uh, probably the greatest, in my view, the greatest mayor that New York has ever had, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. Uh, why do I say that? Because... Um, what was typical of him, and there's countless stories like this, what was typical of him was uh, he saw a, um, he walked into a government office on one occasion, and <laughs> he saw a citizen talking to an official who was behaving arrogantly and, um, and was sitting there with his hat on his head. In those days, uh, many, many people wore hats, but you didn't wear one indoors. It was not polite. And here was a, uh, a city employee talking to a citizen uh, arrogantly wearing a hat. <laughs> Mayor LaGuardia took his walking stick and smashed the hat off the head of the employee and and said to him, if you ever speak to a citizen like that again, you'll be fired. They pay your salary. You work for them. So, uh, you know, as you can imagine, uh, LaGuardia, a great popular, uh, popular, popular mayor among uh, people who uh, have any kind of uh, nostalgia for the kind of country that the founders envisaged. And, um, and, and so Mayor LaGuardia set up this uh, airport, turned it into a general commercial aviation airport, um, and it became known as LaGuardia Airport. And uh, there again, you know, this, the, the 1939 World's Fair was in Queens, right near the airport. And, um, and, and the idea was that some of the glamour of the airport should rub off on the World's Fair. That's what it was. Airports were glamorous places. Uh, people used to take dates to airports. You know, you, you go out on a, a big date on a Saturday night. It was, it was common to go to the airport. And this, this was the picture. Well, I want to contrast that with um, what I saw going through LaGuardia Airport recently. Okay, it happens to be a convenient airport just because the, the, the shortest cab ride from uh, Manhattan is to LaGuardia. Um, if you're going to use uh, Newark Airport, EWR is the three-letter designator, there are ways of doing that that work quite well. Um, JFK Kennedy is very difficult to get to. But um, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about specifically LaGuardia. However, it applies to other airports as well around the country. And that is, my friends, that right now, every night, and I inquired about this, every night there are between 50 and 100 homeless people living in just one 
of the four main terminals of LaGuardia Airport. Okay, I came through Terminal B, and uh, I got it to about at least 50, but more like 100, homeless people lying there. Um, I've got to tell you, it's uh, uh, both men and women lying on cardboard. Um, some of them are, are lying on, you know how in some, some places in the airport, they don't have armrests, so you can kind of stretch out on a bunch of chairs. Well, there were no chairs available for travelers. They were all occupied by extremely unhygienic-looking so-called homeless people. Um, I say so-called because I don't think they should be called homeless, but that's a, a totally different discussion. I'm not speaking about America's homeless problem now as much as I'm speaking about what has happened to our airports. And you could see... I, I wasn't the only passenger who sort of walked extra distance not to walk through where a bunch of homeless were sleeping. You just you just didn't want to be near them, you know. And um, uh, they had taken over some of the chairs in some of the restaurants and cafes. Uh, and here's the worst part. Um, the bathrooms were unusable. You walk into a bathroom in Terminal B, and uh, what you see is you'll see these homeless people naked, taking, giving themselves, um, uh, well, bathing in the, in the, in the wash basins there. It's, um, they, they hang stinking clothing over the stalls and they're walking around completely nude. Uh, it's, I tell you, it's, and by the way, aggressively as well. Um, this is, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not apologetic about it. Not at all. They're extremely aggressive. And um, and that's it. I mean, they, they sleep everywhere. You'll notice I it was in, in the nighttime, you see cleaners um, just ignoring cl the cleaners who normally used to go through the whole airport so that the airport's clean for the next day. The entire areas where the uh, these people are camped out, you'll see the, home, the, uh, the airport maintenance people, t t the cleaning people, just taking their cleaning machines around. Nobody wants to start up with them. Everyone's scared. And so, um, uh, you know, Mayor de Blasio says it's the Port Authority's problem. The Port Authority says it's, a, it's a, someone else's problem. But wait a second. Why is vagrancy allowed in the first place? What's going on there? And if you think about it, this is really all part of the ill that is suffusing the United States of America at the moment. Uh, we all feel it. And sometimes it's hard to put your finger exactly on what it is that fills you with a sense of gloom and pessimism about the country. And this would be yet one other part of it, which is that somehow or another, the, the feeling you have is that the forces of power in this country are not on the side of law-abiding, constructive citizens. The forces of power are on the side of the aberrant, of the alien, of, the, um, uh, of, of those that oppose the culture and civilization that built those airports in the first place. Yes, I guess I'm talking about Western civilization, and... Um, and Western civilization used to have a rule, which is that the public 
has a right to a clean, sanitary public space. And it was completely unacceptable for people to sleep in the street or to urinate in the street or to sleep in airports or to sleep in parks. Uh, there were vagrancy rules. And the cop on the neighborhood cop on the beat uh, would, you know, would tap you with his baton and say, move along now. Come on, you can't, you can't just hang out there. Vagrancy was a problem. And, um, and it was dealt with as if it were a problem and solved and resolved, right? Because there are two sets of rights here. One is the right of the storekeeper to be able to have customers walk into his store without having to step over the bodies of snoring vagrants. And then the other is the argument that is cited, that the vagrants have a right to be anywhere as well. Now, that was not a right that was considered normal or acceptable um, in American life under, under, under our entire history up till relatively recently. But uh, now, everything has changed. And the, the right of the vagrant to be there trumps the right of the citizen to use, in this case, a clean, sanitary, pleasant airport. What's going on? What's going on is that the, uh, the forces, I'm calling them the forces of power, are constantly opposed to everything that upright, law-abiding, constructive, tax-paying citizens are all about. And consistently sides with the the other side, the, the side that is basically making war against everything that built the facilities that they sleep in. That's really what's happening. And the collapse of authority and, uh, and structure in the universities over the last few months has once again been conceding the values that built those institutions in the first place over to those who would destroy them. Essentially, and, um, and I know that this is not popular terminology, but I do think it, it suits the circumstance, it's essentially the ongoing war between civilization and barbarism. And my, my friends, it does seem as if the forces of power favor the side of barbarism, whichever way you turn, wherever you turn, anybody who makes the slightest suggestion uh, that, um, that there should be some kind of restriction on immigration, certainly until, until uh, America feels a little more secure, is viewed as a, an evil person. And you think about it again, the force that built America is civilization. It's Western civilization. Islamic extremism, and, uh, and wherever it is and wherever it's found, is the, 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 the forces of Islam are the forces of barbarism. And so once again, it's, it's Islam against barbarism. Who gets penalized? Who gets searched at the airports? You know, white-skinned, senior citizens from Minnesota. They're the ones that get stopped and manhandled. Right? All for fear of being politically incorrect. Well, 
political correctness is just another word for cowardice. And meanwhile, another great American airport has been turned into a third world hellhole. That's right. LaGuardia Airport, forget about it. It's a third world hellhole. Avoid it if you can. Go there only if you must. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. So, I offer again, a fear, a lack of photosensitization, a, uh, an abundance of plants that are brown, dying near thee, well, then, sucking up all of the energy. An abundance or anecdotal evidence of some brown plants. Let's here. just say some. Okay. Some I plants just, I gotta brown call you on abundance nearby. There. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being with us. The more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. That's right. That is the slogan of me, your radio rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And now we uh, hop over to the other side of the Atlantic and over the Mediterranean uh, to Israel, where a new rule has just been passed. The Israeli Medical Association has just ruled that um, wounded people at a terrorist incident must be aided in order of severity of injury, even if that means helping the assailants before the victims. How do you, how do you like that? Up till now, the rule for the uh, Israeli Red Cross and for first responders and for the medical teams and the ambulances that arrived at scenes of terror is that the victims have to be treated before the attackers. If the attackers are still alive, amazingly enough, they would get medical treatment. And by the way, many Israelis were upset about this because there was more than one incident where a victim who'd had limbs blown off him was lying in a hospital bed next to the bed being occupied by the Arab who detonated the bomb that blew his limbs off in the first place. So both these guys are adjacent to one another in the same room in a hospital because they both came in at the same time. And so uh, there they are. They're put there, and, uh, and as you can imagine, relatives would come and, and visit the person recovering from gruesome injury, and at the next, on the other side of the room, there are relatives visiting the, uh, the bomber, praising him and laughing and uh, having a great old time there because, after all, he's a martyr. He nearly went to heaven. Maybe next time he'll succeed. So, um, that, I mean, that, that in itself was worrisome. The very fact that, uh, that attackers were treated medically at all in the first place would would seem to be questionable, all right? But I'm not going to go into that right now. But at least the rule was that victims, and by the way, they never ever said that Israelis are treated before Arabs or Jews are treated before Arabs. They never said that. Uh, all they said is victims would, be treat, would receive treatment in advance of the attackers. Very often there were Arab victims as well, and they were not discriminated against. They got exactly the same treatment as Jewish victims. 
but the attacker sometimes was was left until everyone else, all the victims had been attended to as much as possible, and only then were medical resources uh, assigned to the attacker. Now, uh, that would appear to be the correct and moral way to do it. However, as liberalism spreads its sordid stain over all of society and, um, and, and, and proceeds to dismantle the West, it reaches Israel as well. And so the uh, Israel Medical Association just ruled that uh, there can be no attention paid, not only to Jew or Arab, we understand that, but not even to attacker and victim. From now onwards, the uh, medical response to terrorist attacks have to be conventional triage on the basis strictly of severity of injury. Isn't that something? It's, it's quite disturbing, I, I think. Quite worrying, and it's the sort of thing, I think about it. Does it make sense to you? And it's not just in Israel we're talking about, because um, in American emergency rooms, if a policeman comes in um, shot by a thug on the street, and the thug also comes in, they both get treatment at the same time. In other words, it's as if the medical profession sees itself as a separate, disjointed part of society, in much the same way that, uh, that journalists did and still do. I remember during the first Gulf War uh, when some journalists were being interviewed, and the question was, what do you do as a journalist if from your vantage point you see an American platoon advancing towards a, uh, an Iraqi ambush. Wouldn't you whistle and yell and, and, and say to, to your guys, hey, stop or point or send some kind of a message to let them know that they're about to be ambushed if they continue further down that street? And the journalists all responded with horror and indignation. Absolutely not, they said. We are journalists. Our job is to tell what happens, not influence what happens. So, it's, it, you know, it reminds me more than anything else. It reminds me of the words in John Lennon's Imagine. And you remember the, the song starts, Imagine there's no heaven, and no hell, nothing, only sky. But the next stanza, the next verse goes, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living in peace. Goes on, the next verse is, Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. So, yeah, but right now, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. It sounds so seductive, and it sounds so appealing. And that is exactly what has seduced the journalistic profession, 
It's what seduced many of the elite of American society. It seduced the president, who does not consider himself to be more dedicated to American interests than other people's interests. This is one of the reasons that he is so interested in so-called climate change. And I'm quite certain that the um, Nobel Peace Prize served to reinforce in his mind the idea that he was a president for the whole world. He was there for everybody. And that it would be wrong for him to uh, pay more attention and devote more concern to the interests of Americans. This, is, this would be why, you'll remember, he rejected the idea of American exceptionalism and said, well, uh, I'm sure the French think that they're exceptional and the British think they're exceptional in the same way we think we are. Didn't occur to him. And I, I think he just didn't get it, that uh, America was a unique country, really founded in, in a very different way from all other countries. Interestingly enough, when uh, Donald Trump made the suggestion that uh, Muslim immigration be slowed or stopped for a period of time, his answer was, that's not the American way. But um, that would suggest that there is something called the American way, and I'm not sure he knows what it is because he rejected the notion of anything specially American. But anyway, that's, that's a, a separate concern that's just been uh, bugging me, frankly. But, uh, but what is it that makes journalists feel that they have no interest in America? What is it that makes now doctors feel, oh, they are doctors first and Americans second, and they're doctors first and Israelis second. So in other words, the idea of being part of a group, being part of a culture, being part of a country, is something that's just completely evaporated. And that the more sophisticated you are, the more elitist you are, the more intellectual you are, the less you're likely to pay any attention whatsoever to your fellow citizens. The idea that your fellow citizens have anything to do with you and you with them? No, we're all part. Anyway, this was the John Lennon seduction as well. Imagine there's no countries. Why is it that this is so appealing to the left? And uh, the answer, I believe, is for exactly the same reason that the left is hostile to the family, very hostile to the structure of the family, In meaning what? Well, that uh, any, any structure of the family works and individuals are just the same as families and any way, any lifestyle you choose. And, uh, and that wasn't always the case. In other words, governments understood that families were a vital part in the chain of survival and that uh, family created the next generation of citizens that would keep the culture and the society and the nation going. And for that reason, there were certain concessions made to families, families, whether it was in the tax code or in other areas. But again, today, that is gone. Why would that be? I do believe that it's because, and I'm not saying every person on the left or every person that tends to take the liberal position on most issues naturally thinks this thing out and goes all the way to the logical conclusion. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there's an idea that spreads through a culture. It's like a meme. And, um, and so you may not necessarily 
follow exactly where it's derived from and what's causing it, but it's there nonetheless. And what is the meme? Well, the meme is that we are nothing but animals. This is an underpinning of the left, and, and that is that since there is no God, the only other alternative way we arrived on this planet is through a very lengthy process of totally unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into plumbers and ballerinas. And, uh, and if, you, if you take that position, that we are basically nothing more than sophisticated animals, well then, naturally, anything that you don't find in the animal kingdom is of no great significance in the human one because we are nothing but animals. And so if we concoct anything which you do not find naturally occurring in the animal world, well then that thing we concocted is just a conceit. It has no reality whatsoever. And since family doesn't exist in the animal kingdom, right? I mean, after all, a dog, a male dog, can walk right by a puppy at sired, and it, it has absolutely no connection with it whatsoever. And likewise, the only connection the puppy has is for a biological reason of milk supply to its mother. And then after a certain period of time, that vanishes as well. But the intensely close and meaningful family ties that um, that that surround human living are a target for the left. And the left misses no opportunity to take a shot at anything that would diminish the, the strength of the family. And I do believe this is one of the reasons that many people are in favor of homosexual marriage because they don't understand the long-term implications. They're not interested in what this says or doesn't say about children, but they do sense innately with, with sort of some dumb sense that this is bad news for the family. And therefore, that appeals to them, that they feel uh, is, is something that they, they want to support and encourage. Uh, the, the, the same thing is... Um, uh, is true for uh, national structure. The idea that you are part of a nation, you are part of a society, and this nation um, supports its army to protect it from, from other nations, this, uh, this nation develops uh, agreement among its people who decide how to spend its tax money and how to be taxed and so on and so forth. These things are not found in the animal kingdom. And I think this is part of the reason that those on the left intuitively oppose nationalism. They call it jingoism and xenophobia, and they intuitively distrust patriotism, seeing it as part of the world of the unsophisticated redneck. And uh, call me a redneck rabbi, I see that as a badge of pride. And yes, I do like country music you must know. So, uh, so there it is. I think that, um, that what happens is that sophisticated people without a, a, a retaining grip on reality tend to view themselves as detached in every way from the, the country that gave birth to them, the country in which they live, and they see themselves as a separate thing. And so this notion that, um, that as medics, 
they owe a greater obligation to their fellow citizens than they do to anybody else is something that, that worries them. And it, in addition to that, uh, there's once again this um, the civilization barbarism rule. Civilization says there is a difference between people based on how they behave. Not on their skin color, not on their, uh, on their religion, no. Civilization says there is a difference between people based on their behavior. And we try to encourage certain behavior that engenders civilization. And as a civilization, we try to discourage other kinds of behavior. Once again, when you move into the zone of the left, all behaviors are equal. And just because one person is a policeman and one person is a thug is neither here nor there. Just because one person is a terrorist and another person is a victim, neither here nor there. Because all people are exactly the same. Bit sad. Bit sad, but at least if we are forewarned, we're forearmed. If we're aware of what it is that's causing these changes, at least we might be able to do something about them. Back in a minute. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. That is why they're so desperate. That's why they're flailing and trying so hard and with so much drama and emotion and nonsense because they have nothing else. They're up against everything in the universe. It is, it, it, it's the very definition of utility. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You know, the, uh, the world of gender in America uh, was originally just sick. It's now dangerously diseased. You'll remember that Larry Summer, the president of Harvard University, lost his job um, for acknowledging that there is a difference in the way intelligence is arranged on average in men and women, right? In exactly the same way as there are more very tall men and very short men, whereas with women, they are, they are more clustered around the mean, so it is also with intelligence. When uh, there are more men with outlying very, very high intelligence, there are also more men at the very low end of moronic in non-functional intelligence. Uh, once again, women tend to cluster around. Now, this is unarguable. And, uh, and now, even though it's unarguable, frankly, if I was the uh, president or the dean of a university, would I have the courage to say what I've just said? I'm not sure. You know, can't ask anybody to, to sacrifice their job if they can avoid it. And, uh, and yet that is where gender is at at the moment. Now, among the great lies in gender is the old chestnut that women are paid 70 cents for every dollar that men are paid. And I thought that uh, we need to just take a quick glance at that. 
um, before we uh, get into the meat of what I actually wanted to talk about. I'm again assuming that, uh, that anybody of good faith, anybody who actually cares about the truth, um, has no trouble whatsoever probing this one and discovering the fallacy. The idea that a man and a woman are working in the same workplace, side by side, doing exactly the same job with the same levels of skill and experience, and the man gets paid $10 and the woman gets paid 6 or $7, if that were true, then any smart employer would only hire women. <laughs> that's, that's what we would do. But it isn't true. The way the 70 cent figure, or it used to be 60 cents, the way that figure is arrived at is very simple. It's a national average. What they do is they take all the money, and again, as you can imagine, there's a lot of softness in these figures. But anyway, they take all the money earned by males in the country, and they divide it by the number of males. Okay, And so they end up with a figure if you like, an annual earning figure of men. Then they take all the money that's earned by females in the country, and they divide that by the number of women, and they end up with a, a, an average annual earnings for women. And not surprisingly, on that basis, the figure for women is somewhere between 60 and 70% of the one for men. And all that this reveals is that uh, on average, there are more women choosing to work part-time or at low-paying jobs than there are men. In other words, if, um, and again, uh, I, I think I've shared these figures with you in the past, but a very high proportion of female doctors work three or four days a week. The majority of male doctors work five or six days a week. There is no comparison. I have said in the past that all things being equal, I'd rather have a male doctor than a female doctor. That's not saying anything rude to any particular female doctor who might be wonderful. But on average, in general, male doctors have twice the experience of female doctors of the same age because they work roughly twice the hours. I'm not blaming women for that. Women have as much free choice to do whatever they want as men do. But the fact is only women get pregnant. Only women have a biological clock ticking. Only women tend to take time off when they have to have children, which men don't do for the most part. And, uh, yes, it is true that uh, some cities in the, in the country have tried to uh, force city employees to take off male employees to take off because they want to diminish the distinctions between men and women. Fact is that uh, most men, even when it's available, do not take time off. It's bad for your work. It's bad for your career. It's bad for your skills. It lets down the other people in your team. Most guys take work seriously, and many, many women do, but far fewer than men. And so that would explain and does explain very clearly where that 60 or 70% comes from. It's absolutely true on average. But it most certainly is not true on any particular individual workspace or any two particular people, one male, one female, with same work experience, same skills. Don't even dream that they get paid differently. They don't. 
It's very simple. And um, uh, women will very often choose um, to, to have a lower paying job if it gives them more time flexibility. Men won't. Uh, I know a case in point. I know a woman who is a skilled pilot for um, United Airlines. Now, she has numerous times been offered promotion to the left-hand seat, to the captain's seat, because she's got that much experience. She turns it down. So she's making about 60% of what she'd make as a captain. She doesn't want it. Why? Because she has very high seniority as a first officer, and she can work things around her kids' schedules. As soon as she moves into the left seat in the cockpit, she doesn't have that anymore. Men would jump at it. It's a career advance. Women don't. Right? You've got to understand that. It's very straightforward. It's what happens. It's the reality. Okay. Well, uh, with all that being said, um, we, uh, in, in our business, we encountered uh, two instances in the last couple of days that really highlighted for me what is going on in the culture right now. These two examples, and I'm quite sure that if I uh, keep an eye open at, for this now, I'll see many more. And uh, now that uh, I'm alerting you to it, I think you will also see many more as well. Okay, what am I talking about? Well, the first case is a, um, a woman who was doing some uh, contract work for us in the financial arena. And um, she... Uh, was was on a schedule. There were there was work that had to be delivered by a certain time. Anyways, uh, it came in four days late. And she's a lovely person. And um, and as it, you know, as it turned out, we were able to sort of work around it with some inconvenience, but we were. And um, and when I commented on on that, she said, you know, I've got four children, you know, and they they have needs. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a moment, lady. What about equal pay for equal work? She is getting paid exactly what uh, a man would have been paid. As a matter of fact, we had no idea who would be assigned to our account, a man or a woman. You know, the, the fee we had agreed to pay was going to be paid regardless of who took the work. But I am being told as a customer that I must expect less performance from a woman because she has responsibilities to her children. Well, I know that. And I know that's why she should maybe, that, that should somehow be explained. Or the company should say, look, uh, we can assign you a woman for $70 an hour or a man for $100 an hour. You can take your choice. The only thing is you have to know with a woman, things will sometimes go run late because she has a family. Give me that choice. But you can't run a, a slogan for decades, equal pay for equal work, and then not deliver the equal work. But that's exactly what we're being encouraged to accept. Uh, the other instance is that um, uh, some work was due to be done, and we uh, arranged for uh, this professional to do it at our home. Again, uh, our home office, that is to say, at our office. And um, again, I had absolutely no idea whether the company was going to send a man or a woman because my contractual arrangement was with a company, not with the actual employee they sent to, uh, to, to do this work. And so 
Um, the woman was due to arrive on, she was supposed to come at 2 o'clock on Monday. On Saturday, I get uh, an email, which I didn't get till Saturday night, which says from her saying, uh, I'll try and be on time, but I've got to take my daughter to the pediatrician. What? Monday is a busy day for me, and I'm, I knew exactly how long I needed to spend with this. It was going to be a 40-minute meeting. We were going to get everything done. So I scheduled my next meeting at a quarter to three because she's due at two o'clock. I, uh, she's going to need 40 minutes. We're going to take 40 minutes for the job. I'll take five minutes for a breather in between. I'll go to my next meeting at quarter to three. I get a, an email over the weekend saying, I'll try and be as close to our schedule. That's not good enough. What does that mean? This is outrageous, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I see what's going on now. So... Um, what, so am I some sort of monster for drawing attention to this? Am I expected now to simply, and that's, by the way, exactly what happened. I tried to reach her on Monday saying, I need to know. No reply. No reply. Eventually, she shows up 25 minutes to 3, 35 minutes late. Quite cheerful, breezes in. And um, uh, she said, I hope you got my email. I said, well, Yes, but I tried to reach you this morning. It would have really been helpful if I'd have known you were going to be 35 minutes late. I'm running tight schedules here. I now have to cancel my quarter to three meeting, and this isn't good. She says, well, what do you want me to do? I had to take my daughter to the pediatrician. Wow. This, okay, so there's a cost involved with this, my friend. There is a cost. There's a monetary cost, right? I lost money on Monday. And multiply this by millions of instances all around the country. And uh, you get a little bit of a sense now that the ideologues had no interest whatsoever in economic realities. They wanted to push women in in exactly the same way that uh, there was this determination to get women into every branch of the military. And women are now on submarines. And guess what? Guys have been taking cell phone pictures of them while they're showering or changing. What did you expect? A hundred men in a hermetically sealed steel tube underwater for often months at a time. And into this incendiary mix, you throw three women and everything is going to run as normal but it doesn't matter. Nobody is interested in military effectiveness. They're interested in the ideological pursuit. And at its ultimate core, this ideological pursuit involves damaging the family. How is this meant to work? I'll tell you how it's meant to work. You've just got to remember a rule. This is a Rabbi Daniel Lappin rule. Write it in lipstick on your bathroom mirror, Engrave it with a chisel in your dining room table. Put it in marker pen on your living room wall. I don't care, but put it somewhere where you'll see it all the time. Every job in America is a two-person job. What that means is that ideally things should be set up. I know I'm saying ideally, right? I understand that this train has already left the station. I'm just telling you ideally Ideally, one person works, and it should be the man. 
and the other person, the woman, provides home front backup. And that means taking care of everything so the man can concentrate on his job. There is a very good reason that in the old days, <laughs> talking about the 50s and 60s and early 70s, many corporations, including IBM, um, used to only hire happily married men for senior positions because exactly what I'm talking about. You have to make allowances if you're hiring somebody who uh, is either not happily married or not married at all or whatever is, is going to be somebody who is going to be drawn off for the inevitable emergencies that keep cropping up. But you hire somebody in a stable, functioning, happy marriage and he's got backup. He's not going to have to run off to, to take the, uh, the children to the pediatrician. His wife's taking care of that. I understand that this train left the station like I said. I get that. Be back with you in a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Fox Sexton. I know nuance doesn't pack theaters full of people. Nuance doesn't pack them in at a political rally. And it sounds just like sort of a fancy word for not saying what you mean, but there are many, many layers here. There's a tremendous amount of separation that's required in these issues. And if you're going to apply principles, you have to apply them to this evenly, and that means that you're going to get into some complicated stuff. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. I am your rabbi. Yes, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. And uh, moving along in this, the 24th episode, we are in um, segment uh, five of this. And... What I wanted to do was give you a little bit of an overview of the turbulence on the university campus. Now, I must say that uh, I think one of the valuable things in understanding how the world really works is to develop your ability to link cause and effect. In other words, uh, instead of viewing um, occasions occurrences and events as all separate and distinct from one another, things that just pop randomly out of the ether. Uh, instead of that, I think it is a very worthwhile exercise to train yourself to think in terms of cause and effect. Uh, by the way, it's also a wonderful family dinner table conversation. You know, to, to look at any event and say, okay, what, what are the things that happened over the last year, five years, ten years, maybe 40 years that made this not only possible, but perhaps even inevitable? And what are these things? Well, uh, right now we're going to take a look at what's going on on the university campuses. And then uh, as we wind down, I will take you to the cause. In other words, at what point did it become pretty obvious that this was going to happen? Um, what we're talking about is the fact that there have been a number of uh, protest movements um, that we've seen over the last few years, 
and all of them are again the 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 struggle of barbarism against civilization for instance all of them favor socialism all of them attack those people who have uh, lived according to I'm referring to uh, protest movements like you remember the Occupy Wall Street uh, and then that was followed by the the Black Lives Matter and uh, and that's led right into the campus protests that began at the University of Missouri uh, went on to Yale University and are now all over the country um, all of these all of these protests um, are uh, socialistically driven and um, all of them are uh, uh, hostile to the people who have built America. They, they're hostile to the values that have built America. And uh, they are essentially rabble. Uh, they are uh, hoping to um, replace um, cleanliness with filth, structure with chaos, and, and whether you look at the Occupy Wall Street or the Black Lives Matter movement or the, uh, the university movement, they really all share that. And, and what I wanted to do is just take a look at, uh, at the university movement a little bit because that one is actually um, causing most turmoil. The Occupy Wall Street, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of news ink but uh, of no significance the Black Lives Matter, just disturbed so many Americans. So many Americans were bothered by the fact that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement objected virulently to um, the idea that all lives matter. No, no, it's black lives. Okay, that bothered a lot of Americans. The campus protests are actually doing things. Uh, not good things, but they're actually bringing about certain change. And so um, one of the things that happened was that the president of the University of Missouri, Tim Wolf, was forced to resign. Uh, then after that, uh, Yale had an interesting thing happened. Um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> you'll remember, I think you all saw on television, the uh, communications journalism professor, Melissa Click, at University of Missouri, uh, who was trying to stop journalists covering the protests and she looked over her shoulder and called for muscle <laughs> she wanted muscle to remove the journalist so once upon a time um, the students were the uh, the heroes of the free speech movement but now they lead the idea of suppressing free speech then at Yale uh, there was a, a professor called Nicholas Christakis well, he has a wife, Erica Christakis, who's a lecturer. And she basically said, look, let's not turn Halloween costumes into a thermonuclear grievance war. You know, you want to wear Halloween, just do it. You know, don't, don't, don't overthink the Halloween costume. Not an unreasonable position, you would think, for adults, right? For heaven's sake, these are university students, most of them over the age of 21. Is this really something that requires a major discussion? with, you know, what sort of costume you're going to wear. Anyways, uh, what happened is that um, the... It, it, I am sorry. 
at Yale, the uh, protesters didn't only go after Erica Christakis, who had the temerity to suggest that that um, people shouldn't uh, take offense in Halloween costumes. They went after her husband, and on November the 8th, they surrounded him yelling insults and curses at him. Uh, the Yale administration neglected to stand up to the mob, and uh, they did not oppose the mob, and so the uh, Christakis were suspended, okay? <laughs> For doing what? It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Ithaca College, okay, it's a, it's a wonderful, used to be a wonderful school upstate New York near Five Fingers Lakes. Uh, they, students all of a sudden demanded the resignation of the school's president. Um, he was not even charged with any transgressions, but merely with failing to respond to black students' grievances aggressively enough. What happened? This is, I mean, this is unbelievable. Um, a, an alumna from Ithaca, uh, in October at a conference, said she, and she, this is to quote her, she has a savage hunger to succeed. And later on, a white Ithaca student who was complimenting her uh, misspoke and said, I love what the savage here said, and called that for Ithaca to bring in more students like her. Uh, well, of course, the uh, the white student should have, you know, just said it. <laughs> I meant the student who used the phrase savage hunger, not the savage. Okay, she misspoke. Um, and um, apparently the students were outraged that the president didn't immediately condemn the second student, the white student. And it took four days. Four days later, the president of Ithaca issued a condemnation. I mean, this is this is like kindergarten we're talking about. A thousand students gathered, calling for his resignation, and um, they uh, they were calling a South African Zulu rallying cry. Amandla Wetu means power is ours. Um, Amherst University had its own version. Um, the uh, at Amherst, three uh, women. Black women decided that after seeing what's going on at uh, University of Missouri and Yale, they wanted it as well. And so they called for a, a protest to discuss, for students to discuss their experiences of racism and marginalization on campus. And they did this, and students spoke for hours and hours and hours as um, classmates and friends and professors, and everybody had to sort of listen and, uh, and, and, uh, and share in on all of this. And then eventually, because these things, they didn't want it to peter out as these things did, they then came up with a list of demands to make sure that uh, there'd be a more inclusive environment for minorities and so on and so forth. And they, they uh, got together to discuss all their demands with President Martin. She couldn't attend the, the meeting because she was out of the country traveling, but, um, or she was going to be, I guess, but she then cancels her trip comes to the campus at 9.30 that night while this big sit-in is going on and, um, and accepted those demands. It's unbelievable. And she accepted them, by the way. Uh, they, they, but they wanted her to apologize. They issued a statement. President Martin must issue a statement of apology to students, alumni and former students. 
of who have been victims of injustices, including but not limited to our institutional legacy of white supremacy. It, it's unbelievable. These are these are people at perhaps the most privileged point in American history, at the most privileged institutions in American history. Do you know how wonderful it is to be a student at Yale or Ithaca or Amherst? Anyways, uh, there was no explanation given as to why President Martin of Amherst ought to apologize, but um, as you can imagine, it didn't take long before that's exactly what she did. Uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, they again protests, uh, Black Lives, uh, University, uh, uh, university protests, and um, at, at, uh, at Chapel Hill and at Greensboro, no specific grievances, but they had a whole lot of requirements. Um, they didn't want the campus to grow any further into the surrounding neighborhood because such growth represents gentrification. Now, gentrification means turning slum areas into nice living areas. It used to be a good thing to do. Today, it's considered to be a bad thing because, well, the poor are virtuous. Those who've accumulated a few dollars are almost by definition the sinners. Um, anyway, they issued a whole lot of statements about the university must not profit from any companies that uh, oh, it must divest its financial interests from all companies that profit from the oil business and also private prisons. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, in Dartmouth University, another very, very prestigious and elite university, uh, students, black students stormed the library and harassed white students, cursing them out uh, with, I mean, horrible things they were saying. I, I'm not going to even, I'm obviously not going to say them on this uh, recording. And... Um, the, at Columbia, these students, the black students, intimidated white students going from dorm to dorm and from floor to floor. The New York Post reports on this, by the way. New York Times doesn't like talking about this. And um, uh, it's, it's, look, it, it's pretty amazing. It really is pretty amazing. Um, then uh, this goes on and on and on. I mean, I can, I can keep telling you more and more, but perhaps one of the more interesting ones is that uh, Oberlin University, um, they uh, claimed that there were some flyers with swastikas and demeaning comments about Martin Luther King on the campus. The school went into a tizzy, classes were canceled, and a student said she thinks she saw uh, Ku Klux Klan members stalking the campus. And then the story suddenly vanishes. So obviously I'm interested, like, what happens? Why? This is, I mean bad racism at Oberlin. What's, what's going on? Well, it turns out the university and the police did investigate and then obscured or concealed the results. It's unbelievable. A freedom of information uh, request had to be filed uh, to reveal that the people responsible for posting the flyers were two student radicals who were Obama supporters and were doing this in order, they claimed, to raise consciousness. In other words, there was no Ku Klux Klan. There was no racism. This was a hoax, a plain and simple hoax. And here's the crazy thing. Uh, virtually all the spectacular racist incidents at modern universities have turned out to be hoaxes. And the universities go to great lengths to hide the discovery that, that, that it was a hoax, right? You'd have thought 
that a university would be happy to prove that it's not populated by neo-Nazi racists. They should have, the, the university should have thrown these two, these two guys, Dylan Blyer and Matt Alden, who posted these things. They should have, they should have prosecuted them. Instead, they covered up the whole thing, and it's like the university was embarrassed that they could not find any racism in the student body. And uh, there's another hoax going on at Harvard Law School uh, where uh, they found um, black uh, electrical tape that was placed over the photographs of most of the school's black professors. Within minutes, it was called a hate crime, and they began to uh, prosecute or began to investigate. Anyway, it turns out to um, uh, have been done by people with of the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, there again at Harvard, another hoax. Okay, so what's going on here? And uh, that answer I will provide you in just a moment as we come back. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Jay Severin. The thing that bothers me about it is that it's not so much that Trump pulled the boner here of sort of hitting himself in the mouth, because I think 90% of the people who heard that response kind of laughed or raised an eyebrow and said, my God, Donald, you sound like the Democrats and the media attacking you. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Your rabbi back again discussing the... Uh, tremendous changes that are being inflicted on American society by the turbulence on the university campus at the moment and uh, where this is heading, where it came from. Well, uh, in um, October 2014, there was a very reliable poll sampling um, Americans and asking whether they would like to see hate speech criminalized. In other words public comments that advocate hatred against any identifiable group. And um, about 35% of people said yes. In October 2015, that number had gone up to nearly 45%. And so there's a growing number of Americans who are willing to have free speech restricted. This is going to continue because this is the movement that is coming out of the campus and influencing all of America. Um, you, you can really see quite quickly from Google that terms like microaggression and terms like trigger warning, they didn't exist until the last two or three years. There were no such words. But all of a sudden, um, in the uh, fall semester of 2013, they started becoming real, spoken about extensively, and then comes spring 2014, and you'll remember that was the time when so many prominent speakers were disinvited from speaking on campuses after they'd been invited, including uh, Christine Lagarde of the International Money Fund and Condoleezza Rice because of her connection with the Bush administration. Whatever it was, free speech was definitely dying. Now, there's a very good book uh, written in 1987 by a Professor Alan Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, and that was called The Closing of the American Mind. 
And it, it was back then already when it was perfectly obvious. Remember, I've been talking about learning to understand cause and effect. Uh, just by reading that book in, in 1987, it was clearly obvious to me that this is where we were going to go unless we would see a sudden backbone, a sudden courage, a sudden conviction on the part of university leaders both academic and administrative, um, in the in the virtue of what they're doing, in, in their value as uh, protectors of Western civilization. But once it was clear that university leadership was not going to step forward and was going to, uh, cow in, in a very cowardly way uh, and in a craven way, they were going to simply yield to whatever students came up with, well, it was clear we were heading into a bad situation. Why? Why was it obvious that students were going to come up with bad things? Maybe students would come up, they'd have protests about wanting to uh, have more rigorous grading and more rigorous classes, and they wanted to have professors who taught more instead of uh, uh, took more time off. Maybe students would ask for good things. No, not likely, because there has been a proliferation on campuses over the last 30 years, a wild proliferation of courses that are not academically rigorous courses. These are courses, and I've told you this in the past, that almost inevitably have the word studies behind them. Gender studies, racial studies, oppressive studies, colonial studies. Uh, all of these courses that have proliferated are non-academically rigorous meaning you don't have to work very hard. You don't, basically, you don't have to work at all because they're subjective. You know, if you're doing math and you get the problem wrong, there's no way the professor can mark you right. You're doing biology, you get it wrong, you're wrong. You do physics, you get it wrong, you're wrong. But there is no way to get anything wrong where everything is just opinion and where the uh, opinion is, uh, is moved day by day, week by week, in a revolutionary direction, then you can never be wrong. So basically, uh, we discover that students never fail out of uh, these, these, these particular programs. Never fail. Students often fail out of mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology. They often fail out of computer studies. No way. They do not fail out of this kind of, um, uh, of program. They don't. And again, I'm afraid that uh, it's a very sad indictment of, um, of black leadership and um, Hispanic leadership, very bad indictment, that they, um, that they accept this, this process. What, what I'm talking about is that um, they, what happens is, and it's, it's unfortunately mostly minority, that's the euphemism we use, mostly minority students, um, who do not want to, or, or maybe are incapable. I, I don't know, but the onus is on them to prove, not, not on me. In other words, since they seem to migrate to these um, politically radical victimology courses, why? Why don't they go into courses like engineering? Why don't they go into pre-med? Why do they congregate 
in these terrible courses that lead absolutely nowhere except in building grievance. What sort of job do you have waiting for you after you get a degree in uh, post-colonial gender racial studies? Right? All you can do is hope for a, a job in academia where you can propagate it and keep it going longer, uh, or you can perhaps become a community organizer, but it's terrible. But it's particularly bad because there is so much free time for people who are taking those academic tracks, there's a lot of free time. Folks taking pre-med, no free time. Folks taking engineering, no free time. But folks taking these radical courses have a lot of free time, and they, they, they have great inflation because they're going to be marked well because the professors want people to come to these courses, so they have jobs. It's, it's a self-fueling um, maelstrom of deterioration and chaos. Shockingly, shockingly bad. And, um, and so once you see this sort of thing happening, it's really so easy to predict the direction. It's so easy to hang up a shingle and call yourself a futurist. All you've got to do is learn to link cause and effect. And if you would have started, you could have started before 87 and uh, Alan Bloom's closing of the American mind. You could have watched the students' protests of the 1968 into the 70s. And uh, you could have then started saying, okay, where could this lead? Assuming that the university leadership is going to be cowardly, is not going to suddenly change themselves. You could have looked back to the first stage where universities allowed students to grade teachers. Now, it used to be that teachers graded students, but the universities now turned this around and allowed students to grade teachers. You could have looked at that and said, this is not going to end well. And so it is that... Uh, War is being declared predominantly on white men, okay? And um, why do I, I say that? Well, that has something to do also with the, uh, with the rape hoax, right? You, and you've heard this again and again, right, that one in five college-age women have been raped. 20% of the young women at U American universities have been raped. It's a lie. It's simply not true. So how do you, if you want to come up with that insane figure, by the way, why do I say it's not true? Very simply because women wouldn't go to university. In the same way that uh, women, for the most part, avoid walking alone in bad parts of town, you can tell. I mean, just walk around at 9 o'clock at night in, in different parts of town, and if there's a place you don't see women walking, you'll know that that's a dangerous place for women. It used to be like that in Manhattan. Today you can walk in, in certainly in, in the... Um, a midtown area of Manhattan late at night, and you'll see women there, okay, because rapes aren't happening there. But women stay away from places that are being raped. That would mean that women would start staying away from universities, and parents would stop sending daughters to universities. One in five, 20%, I'm sorry, too high. I mean, I've got uh, six daughters. I'm not sending them to college if that's the figure, because statistically, God forbid, one of them gets it. So, um, but yet, women are applying to universities at ever-increasing rates. 
There are today more women than men being admitted into America's universities. And so uh, clearly, I mean, just obviously this isn't true, but how do they end up with that figure of 20%? Well, what happened was that um, they, they did a study in 2005 that has been totally debunked. Um, the um, professors um, from Northeastern University, James Allen Fox and Mount Holyoke's Rod, uh, Richard Moran, uh, attacked that and showed the failures. They showed out that that study that came up with the 20% women being raped on campuses used a very broad definition of sexual assault, right? You thought you knew what rape meant? No. Um, they counted as rape any women who, who answered yes or maybe if, they to, if they've ever been subject to attempted forced kissing. And it also included engaging in amorous encounters while intoxicated. So, you, you know, it's, it's automatic. A woman is intoxicated and gets involved with a guy. That's a rape. And, um, and there it is. So what are the actual figures? How many college-age women are? This isn't even at college now. The FBI has the, the actual rate of college-age women is um, 6.1 per thousand students. So that's 0.61%. Not 20%. Not even 2%, but 0.61% of a chance. Um, that is a very, very different figure from 20%. But even, even the president has requoted the 20% figure. It's like, you know, this stuff catches fire and, and goes around and, uh, and shapes how people feel and how people think. So I, I speak about this because uh, this has an impact on the culture. What happens on the campus trickles down, and uh, it becomes part of what happens in American society, and we're seeing this, that there is um, less adhesion to truth because the university challenges whether there is such a thing as truth. Everything is subjective which means our entire legal system is imperiled because if you can increasingly become prosecuted for things that the victim defines, there is no more justice. That's happening on the university campus. People are being punished when victims come forward and say, this person made me feel unsafe. And now... There is absolutely no way to apply justice because whatever I do or say, no matter how polite I am, no matter how cautious I am, somebody else can come along and say what I said made them feel unsafe. It was a microaggression, and I then am uh, penalized, including my uh, academic career being terminated. This is what's happening, and um, it's serious. It's, it's a problem. Are there solutions? Absolutely. Are there things that we can do about this? No question about it. There certainly are things that we can do. Uh, what are they? Well, that I'm going to have to put off until a future uh, show right here on The Blaze when, uh, when we will take a more careful look at are we as ordinary citizens completely powerless? Are we in the grip 
of hidden and sinister forces that are sweeping the country like a tsunami and we can do nothing but try to cling to a tree as the floodwaters try and sweep us out to sea. Is that the limit? Is there nothing more we can do other than simply watching this happen? Or are there things that ordinary citizens can actually do to protect themselves and to help stop changes that are transforming all of American society? Well, we're going to take a look at that because uh, there is a, a somewhat optimistic outlook. There are ways that we can stop the madness, and we are going to take a look at that in a future podcast. So uh, make sure you stay tuned. If you have a chance to go back and look at earlier ones and that you haven't seen or listened to, do that as well. And uh, be in touch with me on any subject at my website, youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com. You can visit the store and see the resources I've prepared for you uh, to dig more deeply into some of the topics I cover on the show. And uh, also, you're able to hit the Contact Us tab and um, be in touch so that we can actually communicate uh, effectively in terms of things you'd like to see us talk about or comments you have on things that have been covered on previous shows. Um, look forward to being in touch, and I, I do like hearing from you. Uh, make sure you subscribe to my free weekly email, Thought Tools. You can do that at the website also at youneedarabbi.com. And uh, that means that um, we have another week until we're together again. So until next week, let me wish for you prosperity and good health. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.